past handful of years, and particularly the last 18 months, have been extremely difficult for us in terms of mental health. There are a lot of ways that we notice that. We observe that anecdotally. We observe, we experience, we hear about incidents in which people seem to have lost their minds or lost their emotions or lost their judgment. Maybe those people even include you. We hear about it from research. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Association put out a study in which they said in their introduction the following. Research on effects of the pandemic has found increased anxiety, depression, traumatic stress, and substance use across the United States. One study found that the percentage of individuals who had seriously considered suicide in the last 30 days had nearly tripled compared to before the pandemic. Mental health experts have expressed concern about a potential second wave of rising rates of distress, mental illness, substance use as a result. Different types of intensities of stressors may have different effects on mental health with stressors such as exposure to the virus and severe, even life-threatening illness, differing substantially in their impacts from secondary stressors such as a reduction in social contact and support due to physical distancing, loss of a job or business, inability to pay for housing and food and beyond. We hear about this from medical professionals. Uh, Several in our church whom I know report that the vast majority of people coming to see primary care professionals are in a state of compromised physical health and seeking medications. Now, there are times in which that is wholly appropriate, but probably not nearly as much as those patients would like. We hear about this in what we see. In fact, the most recent cover story of Christianity Today speaks about the public health crisis that is indicated by fewer people in church. It's a fascinating article of research. To put it in biblical terms, people today are restless, they are disturbed, they are worried about life. Maybe that's you. What is it in your life right now? Circumstance, relationship, uh, something you anticipate in the near future that causes anxiety and that kind of restlessness and worry in your life. Maybe you want to write that down there in your worship program. To note, as we think about what the scriptures say, this is what I'm living, God, in life. People who can be described that way lack a kind of inner peace, peace in relationships, peace in their own circumstances, peace as they face the future. And the demand for peace has never been higher, it seems. And the supply of peace has never been lower, so it seems. Or has it? Maybe we're looking in all the wrong places. Maybe there's actually peace to be had if we knew from where. Could your life be described as full of peace? Does peace reign in your heart? Today we're going to investigate the path of peace from Philippians chapter 4. I hope that you brought a Bible. Take that out. 
turn there to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we'd be glad to give you one. Just raise your hand there in the aisles. uh, We have some hosts who will give you a Bible uh, for keeps. If you don't own one or just on loan, if you do, take that as we look at Philippians chapter 4 and we hear three calls from Paul that are each related to peace. Peace with people, peace in our hearts, peace with priorities as we face the future. And of all the realities that people crave in our time, you could make a good argument that peace is at the top of the list. Everybody's looking for peace. Next week in our special Thanksgiving service, one service at 10 o'clock, November 21st, we're going to be looking at the last section beginning in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 4. Today, it's the first nine verses and this cluster of commands that Paul gives us so that we we would experience the peace of God. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read those verses. And uh, we don't always do this, but on occasion we do. I'm going to invite you to say this with me, to aloud, with volume, read Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. So if you have the NIV as your copy of the scriptures, you can read from there. Otherwise, everyone look at the screen and with some volume, read with me Philippians 4, 1. Just a note before we get to it, there are two names here that might stump you, Euodia and Syntyche, and if you're not quite sure how to say it, just say it loudly with confidence, no one will know the difference. (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 1, read with me. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Thank you. You may be seated. Excellent reading. I hope you pick up a copy of the worship program as you come in. If so, you can take some notes there or reference it online, gracepolaris.org slash program. And we're going to see three calls from Paul related to peace here. The first of which is found in verses 1 to 3, a call to persistent, humble unity or peace in the church. A call to persistent, humble unity or peace in the church. Paul begins chapter 4 with an emphasis on peace between believers in the church as they live out their gospel mission. Now, if you look very closely here, verses 1 to 3, you're not going to find the word peace. But the call to peace, to live in harmony, in agreement with one another, 
is most certainly there. In fact, it's one of three imperatives, three commands that we find in this section. So let's look at them more closely. The first is the call to stand firm in the Lord. And this is a call that Paul gives to brothers and sisters, all the believers in Philippi. And before we examine what he meant by it, we need to understand how he couched it. Look at all the terms of affection and endearment that Paul uses here for the Philippians. He calls them brothers and sisters, siblings in God's family. He expresses his love for them. He communicates his longing to see them, to be with them. He, he calls them my joy, designating his gratitude for their relationship. He, he lauds them as my crown, looking forward to the recognition of Jesus in their lives. Five times here, Paul highlights the value of the Philippians to himself. Before Paul says any word of exhortation, before he says any word of correction, Paul affirms the relationship and he shows us a great model in how we value one another. First directive here, stand firm in the Lord. As they align themselves in the gospel, as they access the power of the Lord in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, Paul says, stand firm. And the word used here in the original is curiously like the word we have in English, stake. And that's the idea. A stake in English is something that we plow into the ground in order to hold something against forces that would want to move it. That's what Paul instructs the Philippians to do. It's the same directive, same word that he uses way back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, when he tells them to stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one. Followers of Jesus, Paul is saying, are meant to be by nature now tenacious and resolute and spiritually stubborn as they grip Jesus. All believers are meant to stand firm in the Lord. And then Paul moves not to all, but to two, two individuals in the congregation, two ladies in particular in the church at Philippi, and he calls them out. He calls them out for commendation here, and he calls them out for correction as well. Look there. Their names are Euodia and Syntyche. If you're about to have a girl, here are two more names for you to choose from. Let's start with the commendation. Paul says these are valued teammates in the gospel ministry of Paul. They have become essential to what God's doing in the gospel, not only in Philippi, but presumably beyond that in the witness of the gospel. They have contended at my side, Paul says. You can hardly think of a more uh, laudable reference to people than what Paul says about them here. They've been in the trenches with him. Here at Grace, we believe in the equal value and the equal ministry significance of females. And that was the pattern of Jesus and the pattern of Paul. Now, we don't believe that men and women are designed by God completely identical except for physiology. We believe that, that God wires men and women in complementary fashion. There are certain roles even that God gives to men or to women as well as many that he gives to both. For instance, in the church, we believe that the Bible teaches that the role of spiritual oversight and responsibility before God 
as a church is given to godly men. And we're presenting and recognizing several of them today. That elders bear a particular responsibility for the well-being of you, our church family, and of our common mission as a church. But in no way, in no way, does that denigrate the gifts or the influence or the fruitfulness of women along with men in our spiritual calling. You see, a healthy local church needs men and it needs women to follow God's call on their lives. The, the call to serve, the call to lead, the call to teach, the call to sacrifice and love and pray and witness and more. And we celebrate so many of you ladies who are serving and living in that way, consistent with God's design, consistent with what the Bible teaches. Thank you. Paul celebrates too, Euodia and Syntyche. They mattered in gospel mission, and he highlights that. But they had a personal issue that wasn't resolved, and one that apparently was causing tension beyond the two of them. Tension, negative impact in the church. These are ladies who are partners in the gospel, and yet they're in tension with one another. Never happened before, right? We see here that no one, not even key believers, not even gospel workers, is beyond toxic relationships that affect people around them, that affect even the whole church. Lucas Cohen, our pastoral resident, said this week, when there's conflict between two people in the church, it's not just between them. It affects others. And he's right. When two people are feuding, maybe you've noticed this, there's a tiptoeing around them. There's a fragility to the relationships in the group and the church around them because of that. And so Paul exhorts and he corrects these two by name. Why? Well, not just because it hurts the church, but because disunity in the church affects the reputation of the gospel. Let me say that again. Disunity in the church affects the reputation of the gospel. When two people are unreconciled, many people suffer. Now, to be clear here, there's a lot we don't know about this situation. We don't really know the background of these ladies. We don't know the presenting issue. We don't know how long it's been a reality. We, we don't know what Paul knows. We don't even know how damaging it's been to the church. We do know that in some way, shape, or form, it is holding back the power and the appeal of the gospel and their witness in Philippi. And if you'll notice here, Paul doesn't choose sides. He honors them both, but he makes clear to both of them that they need to be of one mind together. Their conflict doesn't honor the Lord. It doesn't honor each other. It doesn't honor their witness. Matt Harmon, Dr. Harmon with us a few weeks ago said it like this, such agreement does not mean uniformity, but rather a willingness to set aside personal agendas for the greater good of unity around the gospel and its progress in the world. There are so many issues in life and so many more in the last 18 months for us to be in conflict and tension with one another. 
But the point Paul is making here and that Dr. Harmon makes in looking at this passage is that there are so many issues not worth disunity and conflict in relationships. And so many things that ought to bind us together even when on this or that point we may not see eye to eye. Let me ask you this morning, is there a relationship that you have with another believer where your intention, where you're not of the same mind, and maybe that unreconciled relationship is having toxic effects on people around. Maybe not hundreds, maybe not dozens, maybe a couple. Is there an unreconciled relationship in your life? Even as you look at the last 18 months, are there estranged or damaged relationships between you and another believer, particularly within our church? If so, here's what Paul would say to you. Set aside your personal agenda, your insistence on being right. Or as Walter Hansen says, when their common bond in the Lord becomes central, their attitude toward each other will be the same as Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, expressed on the way to the cross. They will not claim their rights for their own advantage. Pastor Jim has often said, Are you more concerned about being right or being righteous? Paul says, prioritize unity in the gospel and in our common witness. Be willing to humble yourself. Be willing to ask for forgiveness. Be willing to grant forgiveness. One of the most tragic things of the last 18 or 20 months hasn't been the effects of the pandemic on people's health. Tragic enough as it is. It's the damaged relationships, the tensions between believers, within families, within a church. And then people just walk away without addressing it or seeking reconciliation. Paul says, let that not be you. He says in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As one of our pastors said this week, it's hard to stay at odds with someone if we are praying for them. How true. Next, Paul issues another call. Second point, a call to confident, thankful prayer in our hearts, beginning in verse four. Let me ask you, what's the most telling feature or characteristic of a follower of Jesus Christ? What distinguishes a Jesus follower in most rapid fashion. Some people would say it's faith. It's, it's faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and we trust him for it. Some would say it's love. It's the love that is displayed in relationships with one another. Some would say it's hope in our lost and hopeless world. It's someone who has hope for the future. I might argue and think Paul might agree that the most distinguishing feature, the quickest one to see is joy. Joy as the distinctive mark of the believer in Jesus Christ. And we have evidence. This is a passage that many of us have heard repeatedly. Maybe we've memorized parts of verses. And it's worth all of our focus. But before we get to the one that we're most familiar with, perhaps, we can't skip over chapter 4, verse 4, where Paul says not once but twice, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Why? Because joy speaks to our minds. It speaks to our hearts. It speaks to our affections. Joy 
is a choice and a response. Joy is a perspective that we have as we look at life. It's not simply a feeling. That's why Peter can say, count it all joy. Not feel it, choose it. The joy that Paul calls for, the English Standard Version Study Bible says, is not a happiness that depends on circumstances, but it's a deep commitment or contentment that is in the Lord based on trust and a sovereign living God who is available always, even in difficult times. Believers can have joy. Believers should have joy. A joy that's observable to others. Is that you? Are you better at arguing and complaining and grumbling about the circumstances in life? On the heels of this double call to rejoice, Paul calls for our gentleness. Some, some of your translations say reasonableness or maybe even graciousness. The idea here is a forbearing spirit. It's a gentle spirit. It's the attitude of a person who's charitable towards other people, even with their faults, even with their failures, because that person takes into account the context of that person's life. Paul's referring to someone who is slow to judge others, to fault others, slow to place blame, slow, and this is hard, I know from personal experience, not to assign motives from someone else's behavior or words. Are you quick to do that? Not just to see what they do or to hear what they say, but to say, and I know why. Paul says this kind of person is not like that. They give the benefit of the doubt because they recognize that people act and speak in a context, many reasons that we're not aware of. We all want to be treated in light of our context. Are we willing to treat other people in light of theirs? Almost as a reason for such behavior, Paul writes there, the Lord is near. And he says this multiple times in his writings. It could mean that the Lord is near to us, uh, proximity. True enough, but there's a much better argument that the Lord is near is referring to the coming of the Lord, the return of Jesus Christ again. And if Jesus Christ and his return is imminent, Paul says it changes things. It sparks joy. It fuels patience. It fosters grace in our lives. And... He adds, it will undermine worry. Put simply, if you truly know that you belong to Jesus Christ, if you truly believe that his return is imminent, then you slowly develop an immunity to the bad news of our world and the fear of hard circumstances in your life. It's not that you don't face them. It's that you choose to let the bigger picture rule. Not all you see is all there is. Do you see that immunity developing in your life? If you do, then verse 6 becomes our reality. And it's Paul's central command here in this passage. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Actually, two directives here, a negative one and a positive one, and they go hand in hand. 
And these two things, anxiety and prayer, don't live well together. They're allergic to each other. They exist like oil and water. Which one characterizes you? Paul begins here with a prohibition. Do not be anxious about anything. And the thing that I notice, maybe you do too, is the all-encompassing nature of this command. It's not that Paul prohibits anxiety in the big things, but says all the little things, it's all right. There's no opt-out clause here. There's no conditional clause where Paul makes allowance for a bunch of anxiety. But it begs the question, what is the anxiety he's talking about? What is he prohibiting? Is there a kind of worry or of anxiety that actually is acceptable? Actually, according to the Bible, there are some kinds of concerns that are not sinful. For instance, if we look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul uses the same word with two different kinds of people. Paul's speaking about the married and the unmarried and how they follow the Lord. And he says, for instance, that the married person who is concerned, same word here, about how to please his wife, that's commendable. He speaks of the unmarried person who is concerned, same word here, about how to please the Lord. That's commendable. So there's a kind of concern we might even say anxiety that Paul says is justified. But not the kind of concern or anxiety or worry that doubts that God is capable. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was facing down the cross, pleaded with his father and then said, not my will, but yours be done. Let's face it. Most of what we worry about, most of our anxiety is not approved by God because it communicates a lack of trust in either God's sovereignty or God's goodness or both. In other words, we don't believe that God is in control or we don't believe that God is good or both. And therefore, we're anxious. And that kind of anxiety, the Bible makes clear, is sinful. Paul forbids followers of Jesus from that anxiety. In fact, Jesus forbids it. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Verse 31, so do not worry, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen to that. The things that you can't control, Jesus says, Paul says, God can so don't worry about them. Don't be anxious. Don't be paralyzed. Instead, do what Paul's compatriot Peter says. Cast your cares upon him. Hurl your concerns to God and he will care for you. Do you believe that? Paul starts with the prohibition. Do not be anxious about anything. He moves to the, the command, the positive there in verse 6, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. There's a lot in there. Let's not miss the main command. Pray. 
pray. When we pray, there's content, but prayer is also a posture before God. Prayer is is open about our neediness, open about the fact that we don't have control, open about our dependence upon the Lord to help, to intervene. Prayer says, God, I need you. Prayer says, God, I trust you. Prayer says, God, I'm counting on you. Prayer is a practice and it's a posture before God. Paul's not content here just to tell us to pray. He tells us when to pray and how to pray and in what spirit to pray. Look there. When should we pray? What's it say? In every situation. There's not a phase of your life. There's not a time of your day. There's not an encounter in your relationships where prayer is unnecessary or without value. We should pray in every situation. We should be marked by a pattern of presenting requests to God. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 carries this similar theme. Paul says in the the middle of this passage on spiritual warfare and the battle that followers of Jesus have in this world and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's saints. A comprehensive Call to prayer. How should we pray? By prayer and petition. It's true, we don't approach God like he's a cosmic vending machine. That that we need to negotiate with God. If you'll give me that, then I'll do this. We approach God as a good father. We, as one good author on prayer, Daniel Henderson says, we seek his face before we seek his hand. He's a person, after all, not just a distributor. But we do seek his hand. We ask God. We ask God to use us and to help us and to protect us and to change us in all kinds of ways. Don't don't ever be shy about asking God for help. Never think, well, I've asked him five times. Six might be too many. Ask him a hundred times. He's a good father. He cares for us. In what spirit should we pray? Maybe this is the most convicting of all. Paul says, with thanksgiving. Our prayers ought to be so marked by an attitude of thanksgiving, of gratitude, that other people are stunned to see us, to hear us, as we pray for them, as we describe our prayers, as we pray with them. Of all people on the planet, followers of Jesus should be thankful people because it expresses our dependence on God and our recognition that he is good and kind. And he's shown that ultimately in meeting our greatest need, what Jesus did for us on the cross, so that we would no longer be imprisoned to our own sin and selfishness, but instead could be reconciled to God. He is a good, good father. Gratitude is something that we develop. It's a discipline that we cultivate. We don't just flip a switch and all of a sudden become grateful people. We see that in the lives of Old Testament saints thousands of years ago. Daniel, for instance, you remember the story, was told that unless he bowed down and prayed to King Darius as a kind of deity, that he would be thrown into the den of lions and shredded in a heartbeat. So what did Daniel do? Daniel 6.10 says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, 
He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. That's remarkable. Do this or you die at the paws of lions. And Daniel goes back and says, thanks be to God. I trust you. You know what you're doing. Most of you aren't being fed to lions. Are you giving thanks to God, whatever the circumstances? When we express gratitude in thanksgiving, it's one of the most noticeable, it's one of the most appealing traits as a follower of Jesus. Like joy, it shows that we believe in God's sovereignty and we believe in God's goodness. And we believe that God will come to our aid. We live in a bitter world. We live in a cynical, hopeless world. And when we are frequent expressors of thanks, people take notice. They want to know where that comes from. Not only that, but it has personal benefits from us. Walter Hansen says, without thanksgiving, prayer becomes merely a way of complaining to God about all the bad things that are or might be happening. Ouch. Is that your prayer? God, here's all that's wrong in my circumstances. Change it. One of our pastors remarked this week, the weeds of discontent don't grow well in the context of a heart of gratitude. And that's right. Grateful people become contented people who trust God. What's the result of someone who refuses to be anxious, who's full of thanksgiving? Well, the peace of God. Prayer is the antidote to worry. The result of prayer is God's gift of peace, namely the secure confidence, here it is, that God is sovereign and he's loving, he's good. And this transcends all understanding. It's something you can't explain. It's something you can't quantify. It's something that is there and is divine. And so many of you in our church can think of circumstances or seasons in your life where despite all circumstances, God reigns peace in your heart. And that is a testimony to his presence in your life. This isn't the power of positive thinking. This is the supernatural peace of God who's like a soldier protecting your heart and mind and allowing peace to rule in your life. Those kind of people are enviable and needed in our world. Finally, Paul issues a call to thoughtful, demonstrated priorities in our lives. God's the guarantor of peace. And when we choose things that befit him, we show off who he is and what he's designed for us. That the God of peace will be with us through the thick and thin of life. That we will never be alone. Look at verse 8 there. Paul assembles here a list of virtues that were highly esteemed in the Greco-Roman culture. These were things that describe the good life. Even the pagan Greeks aspired to these things. And it shows us that not all that's out there is somehow to be rejected or reprehensible to us. There are longings and aspirations of people who don't know Jesus Christ that we share. The difference is we know where the power comes from and the presence of God to see them realized in our lives. Paul lists those in verse 8. 
And we ought to dwell on those things. Paul looks at all of them, names them, and says, whatever is excellent and praiseworthy, those things let your mind dwell on. Is that your practice? Let me ask you, whatever your age, and this includes those especially who are younger forming patterns, when you choose visual entertainment, does it match this list? When you select musical playlists, does it match this list? When you choose what you read or choose your podcast, does it match this list? Do you know people in your life who embody the kind of characteristics Paul names in verse 8? Do you have mentors, you have peers that you can say, that's them, that's him, that's her? Do you have those kind of people? Are, are you one of those people? Paul puts himself forward as one of those people. He invites the Philippians to consider his life, the things he's taught, the way he's lived, the things they've heard, what they've witnessed, how he's modeled. And Paul commends his life, follow me as I follow Christ. And Paul would be sure to say, and there are believers in Philippi worthy of your imitation. And he would say to us here at Grace Polaris Church, there are believers in this church family worthy of your imitation. Find them. Make a priority to get close and personal with them. Watch their example. Join a Bible study with them. Serve with them. Ask them to pray for you. Learn from them. What is taught and especially what is caught is critical in life. And what's the result? Here it is. The God of peace will be with you. The God of heaven who designed us to have peace will be our peace. Don't you want that peace? Don't you want peace with other people, with other believers? Paul says, choose humility, practice unity in those relationships. Don't you want peace in your heart? Pursue a life of prayer that resists anxiety and casts your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. Don't you want peace as you look forward at the unknown future? Paul says, choose the virtues and the patterns that reflect the character of God. This is the God of peace. This is the path of peace. This is the peace of God. This is the peace from God. Dr. Harmon says, all that the world can offer is a peace that is based on circumstances that are favorable. But God offers us an otherworldly, a lasting, a satisfying peace. And it's a peace that can be yours. Peace is the result of putting into practice a trust in the God of the gospel. And Paul commends that peace he invites us to embrace it from God. May that be true of you and me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the scriptures and we thank you for this admonition and invitation to embrace you as the God of peace and to embrace the peace that you offer us. Thank you that amidst the challenges and the tumult and the difficulties of this world, that though in this world we may have trouble, you offer us peace. 
I pray that we would be the kind of people individually in our own lives and collectively as a local church that displays a kind of otherworldly peace that the world is captivated by. I pray that in the workplaces and the families and the neighborhoods of people connected to Grace Polaris Church, that we would be a people that exude peace. Thank you that it's not something we manufacture. It's something that you offer and it's something that we can embrace. Help us, Lord, to live this out in ways that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.